There's so many nice things about me. I think of the guy who was asked what was the most amazing thing to him. And he says, well, he says, it amazes me that my kids know me, know my faults, but still love me. He said, my wife, she knows me a lot better than they do. And it's amazing that she still loves me. He said, the most amazing thing is that God knows everything about me, and he still loves me. Been a good conference. <clears throat> I have two things by way of introduction. One is I'm going to be reading a lot of tonight. I used to be able to take a half page of scribbled notes and preach for an hour without any trouble. Now I have 20 pages and I have 14 page, 14 point type. The other thing is when you get old, there are two very bad things happen. And that's why I need the notes. One of them is you forget things. And the second one is. <laughs> Steve mentioned that there is a couple of different views on the covenant of works. And uh, when I use the word covenant of work, phrase covenant of works tonight in this sermon, uh, I mean the covenant of works as it is expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I say that so there won't be any confusion. And my definition is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says the first covenant made with Adam was a covenant of works. They call it a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So when we use the phrase covenant of works, that's what we mean. There is an ongoing debate, not just in Christendom, but also within New Covenant theology as to whether or not there is a covenant of works with Adam. We have some here who don't agree with me and I have nothing much to say to them except you've been wrong before. <laughs> this is not an area where we divide over. It is an in-house debate which is ongoing and we're all still learning to each other. People who understand the historical meaning of the word Protestant will recognize and agree that the doctrine of justification by faith is one of the central doctrines that divide us from Roman Catholicism. The heart of the doctrine of justification by faith is the truth that the ground whereby a sinner is declared righteous in the sight of God is nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ, the atonement, and the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. And if I say anything tonight that in any way questions the imputed righteousness of Christ as the one and only basis for a sinner's acceptance by God, then forget I said it because it would be wrong. The text is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the phrase made to be means he was not something that he was treated as. He was treated as a sinner, but he wasn't a sinner. 
He was made to be something he wasn't. And just as he was made to be a sinner and treated as a sinner, that was so that we might be made righteous in him. And we have the righteousness of Christ even as he took our sin upon himself. So any view that denies the righteousness of Christ imputed to a believer is simply foreign to the gospel of the New Testament. And this departure, this departure from this faith of justification by faith is the reason that we have left some friends of long time and we no longer can have fellowship with them in the truth because they have departed from the truth and have adopted a view of justification by faith which we feel is losing the gospel itself. Now we want to emphasize that everybody who holds the new perspective does not deny the imputed righteousness of Christ. But there is a distinct tendency in that movement to move in that direction and many of the leaders do deny the righteousness of Christ. Recently some, quest, some writers have questioned the classical reformed view of what is called the active obedience of Christ. And reformed theology has divided up the work of the atonement of Christ into his active obedience and his passive obedience. And by passive obedience, they mean that he passively yielded himself up to death and suffered in our place, paid for our sins by his shed blood on the cross. His active obedience is where he actively, consciously, deliberately obeyed the law and earned the righteousness that the law promised. And these two things are imputed to us, his death on the cross and his obedience of life, and that's the basis of our justification before God. His death on the cross, that's his passive obedience. His active obedience, that's his obedience of obeying the law. Both of these redemptive words are necessary for our salvation. Then they go on to say, if all that Christ did for us was die on the cross, we would be forgiven, but we would not be able to go to heaven. We would not have a positive and essential righteousness that's needed to go to heaven. We would be like the state of a Roman Catholic limbo where a child who is not baptized and dies cannot go to heaven, cannot go to hell. It can't go to hell and be punished for sin because it has not yet personally sinned. And it cannot go to heaven because its original sin in Adam, which they didn't do, that has not been washed away in baptism. So they're in limbo. And if all that Christ did for us, according to this reform view, is that Christ died for our sins and paid for it, but that's all he did, we would be in limbo. We wouldn't be righteous, we would be forgiven, but not righteous, and would not be ready for heaven. Here's a quotation from Gratian Machen, a great and godly Presbyterian man, and he defines for us uh, what he understands as the active obedience of Christ. This is from a radio broadcast, and as I read this, I, I want you to think of three things that's in here that's important. Number one, the classical reform position on active obedience is built entirely on the covenant of works before, covenant of works with Adam before he fell. That's the ground of the position. Secondly, you do not have to believe in a covenant of works with Adam in order to believe in the active obedience of Christ. And this is what is not, is not being discussed today, unfortunately. I don't believe there was a covenant of works with Adam. I do believe in the active obedience of Christ 
and that that act of obedience was earned for me by his keeping the law, but it's not the law that was given to Adam, it's the law that was given to Moses. Here's Machen's quotation that will give you an idea of the view. If Christ had merely paid the penalty of sin for us and had done nothing more, we should at best be in the situation in which Adam found himself where God placed him under the covenant of works. In other words, if Christ only paid the penalty for our sins through his passive sufferings, then we are merely transported back to the Garden of Eden. That covenant of works was a probation. If Adam kept the law of God for a certain period, he was to have eternal life. If he disobeyed, he was to have death. Well, he disobeyed, and the penalty of death was inflicted upon him and his posterity. Then Christ, by his death on the cross, paid that penalty for those whom God had chosen. Well and good. But if that were all that Christ did for us, do you not see that we should be back in just the same situation in which Adam was before he sinned? The penalty of his sinning would have been removed from us because we ha he had paid it all. But the future, the attainment of eternal life, would have been dependent upon our perfect obedience to the law of God. We should simply have been back in the probationary period again. Moreover, we should have been back in that probation period in a very much less hopeful way than in which Adam was originally placed in it. Everything was in Adam's favor when he was placed in the probation. He had been created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He had been created positively good. Let me digress for a minute. One of the problems that we have, one of the hang-ups we have, with the covenant of works as it's defined in Reformed theology is if he was, if Adam was created in righteousness, holiness and knowledge and was perfectly good, why does he need life and righteousness? What, what, what can be added to this? Does he not have everything? Did he not have fellowship with God? Did he not walk in the garden and know God? So that's, that's one of our stumbling blocks. Uh, yet despite all that, he fell. How much more likely would we be to fall, nay, certain to fall, if all that Christ had done for us were merely to remove from us the guilt of past sin, leaving it then to our own efforts to win the reward which God had pronounced upon perfect obedience. If you want to see this whole sermon, it's in www.reformationtheology.com. Now, not all evangelicals at the time of the Reformation or subsequent to that would accept Machen's view here as it is stated. It's vital to realize that the men who don't accept it, men like J.N. Darby and William Kelly, who were Plymouth Brethren, and the Plymouth Brethren do not hold to the covenant of works as taught in Reformed theology. They totally reject it. And they reject it because they say it really minimizes the cross. So, so don't, don't, don't say these people are denying the, the glory of Christ. They think they're fighting for the glory of Christ. And they say that this makes the cross to be only half of our salvation and we need the law, righteousness of the law for the other half. They say we don't believe that. These men accepted just as strongly as the reformed people that it was essential for Christ to be born under the law, to live under the law, and then to, to have a perfect life under the law, to die under the curse of the law, in no sense did these brethren deny the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
They just denied it came from a covenant of works with Adam, and it is vicarious in the same sense that his shedding his blood on the cross was. They say there's no vicarious law-keeping in that sense. They simply insisted that Christ's law-keeping was not vicarious in the same sense as his death on the cross. It's essential that we understand the position of both historical parties, the Puritans and men such as Darby and Kelly, who disagreed with the Puritans. It's especially vital that we see that the Plymouth Brethren's intention was to protect the glory and the efficiency of the death of Jesus Christ. They felt that the Reformed people were saying the cross provided only half of a justification. No one is more Christ-centered in their preaching than in the Plymouth Brethren assemblies. And when anybody would infer that if you take their position, it will lead to the new perspective and justification is just being absolutely ignorant of history. I don't know of an assembly in all of history that went into the new perspective. I don't know of anybody who is more Christ-centered and would be less likely to go into the new perspective than the Plymouth Brethren. I don't consider the view that the imputed righteousness is not the basis of our salvation, such as the new perspective teaches, I don't view that as orthodox. That's not an acceptable view. I think that's outside of the pale of true orthodoxy. It can't be considered correct in any sense whatsoever. Now, I believe there are three views held by evangelicals and that you can hold any one of these three views and still be orthodox. The views differ on where and how our Lord earned the righteousness that's imputed to us. But they do not disagree on the need for such a righteousness or its purchase for us by the atoning work of Christ alone. The first of these three views is that of classic covenant theology. And here we have it explained to us by R.L. Dabney in his lectures in systematic theology. And Dabney insists that the righteousness imputed to us is the same righteousness that Adam needed and was given an opportunity to earn by obeying a covenant of works. Adam lacked and had to earn righteousness and eternal life. And this he could do by obeying the covenant of works. He would have agreed, Dabney would have agreed with Machen's radio broadcast. Adam could have earned this necessary righteousness and life by obeying a covenant of works that God had made with him in the Garden of Eden prior to his fall, if that's the case. Christ obeyed the same covenant that Adam failed to obey. Christ also earned for us the same righteousness and eternal life that Adam failed to earn. Now that's the heart of the active obedience of Christ in the Reformed view. It's the classic Reformed view and held by good and godly men. Christ keeping the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep was just as vicarious as his dying on the cross. Christ's vicarious cross work provided forgiveness. It didn't provide righteousness. The cross provided the complete forgiveness that we needed, but we also needed a positive righteousness. And that's what Christ supplies by the covenant of works. The second orthodox view is that set forth by the Plymouth Brethren, found in the writings of J.N. Darby and William Kelly. And if you want to view this, Look up on Google William Kelly and go down to sermons and find one of his sermons on righteousness and you'll find the view that he takes. If you want to see his view criticized, 
uh, Dabney's works, I forget which one it is, let me see if I have it here, yes. In his discussions, uh, Plymouth, uh, Dabney's discussion, page uh, 171, that has a criticism of the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, recently, some theologians have adopted the same view as Kelly and Darby. They teach that Christ's law-keeping was essential to make Christ a suitable and efficient Savior, but it did not vicariously provide righteousness. It was the cross work alone that provided forgiveness and righteousness. And again, I emphasize the Plymouth Brethren were sure square on impute, impute, imputed righteousness, but not that it came from the Adam, a covenant of works with Adam. The third orthodox view is the view that I hold. I believe indeed that the righteousness that I have is a righteousness earned by Christ in his law-keeping work. However, the law he kept was not covenant theology's covenant made with Adam, but basically covenant theology, basically covenant theology is in the right pew, the right church, but the wrong pew. They're right in talking about imputed righteousness from law-keeping, but they just have the wrong law. Christ was indeed born under a law covenant that promised life and righteousness upon the grounds of perfect obedience, but it was not a covenant of works with Adam. It was the Mosaic law covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Christ was born under the Mosaic covenant, lived a perfect sinless life under that covenant, then died under the curse of that covenant. He also earned the righteousness that covenant promised. The righteousness reputed to sinners who believe the gospel is the righteousness promised in the Mosaic covenant. As we explore the topic of imputed righteousness, we ask several questions. First, what was Dabney and Kelly's understanding of the active obedience of Christ's atoning work? Exactly what was their objection to the view taught by covenant theology? In the eyes of Darby and Kelly, the reformers' view, the Reform Reformation writer's position, seemed to be saying 50% of our salvation, forgiveness of sins, came from Christ's passive obedience in his work on the cross, the other 50% of our salvation, righteousness, came from Christ's active obedience in keeping the law to vicariously earn a needed righteousness for us. All sides in debate agreed that biblical justification enabled a sinner to say, because of Christ's atoning work on my behalf, God has declared that he will henceforth treat me just as if I had never sinned, but just as if I had always obeyed. That was and is not debatable. And I want to emphasize that. I keep saying it, but I want to keep emphasizing it because there are people today who are accused of not believing in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And they do believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. They've said some very foolish things. They've raised some objections that, that I don't think are valid, but they have not in any sense denied the imputed righteousness of Christ. They are denying that the righteousness came from Christ keeping a covenant of works. However, the idea to be inferred that half of a two-part salvation came from Christ obeying the law and the other half came from Christ shedding his blood on the cross is what they sense. This seemed to the brethren to be non-biblical. Their view seemed to them to minimize the blood of the cross. To be fair, <coughs> we must remember that the Reformed people recognized that their terminology was clumsy. And Mason in one of his statements says the, these statements are clumsy. And, and it's difficult to say in a term what they meant. <coughs> uh, 
Let's look at a defense of the historical view and then a defense of the dissenting view. The following quotations are from Dabney's Systematic Theology. And Dabney was one of the most distinguished Presbyterian theologians. Uh, he's, he's, Dabney's the Systematic Theology is probably the only systematic theology that I've read most of it. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. Sometimes his logic overpowers his text, but he's still a brilliant man. He was unreservedly, he was unreservedly committed to covenant theology as expressed in the Westminster Confession. Here's what he says. The catechism defines justification as a pardon of all of our sins and accounting us as righteous in God's sight. It's more than remission <coughs> bestowing also a title to God's favor and adoption to that glory which would have been won had we perfectly kept the covenant of works. That's from his works 624. I think everybody here would agree with that. Anybody disagree with that? Did you understand what he said? How many understood what he said? How many didn't understand what he said? How many are too chicken to answer? <laughs> oh dear, we're gonna have a tough night. I can see that tonight. <coughs> Covenant theology's view of the active obedience of Christ involves the necessity of believing that there was a covenant of works with Adam. Everyone in this discussion agrees with Dabney's definition of justification as both the pardoning of our sins as well as an accounting to us as righteous in God's sight. When, Dab when Dabney introduces the idea of covenant works, he's not talking about the covenant works made at Sinai, which indeed promised life and righteousness on the ground of obedience. He's talking about a covenant of works supposedly made with Adam before he fell. The justification we inherit is the same justification and benefits that we would have won or earned had we in Adam obeyed the covenant. Dabney's point is that Christ, by his vicarious law-keeping, earned the same righteousness necessary for justification that Adam needed, could have earned, but failed to earn under covenant works. Here we part company with him. We reject as Dabney sets it forth, a covenant of works with Adam whereby Adam could have earned a life and righteousness that he did not already possess. Several points follow this and are vital to understand. One, the act of obedience of Christ taught by covenant theologians is a logical doctrine deduced from that system of theology. If there is a covenant of works with Adam, whereby he could have earned righteousness by his obedience to that covenant, then the concept of active obedience of Christ as they understand it is not only feasible, but it is established as a fact, if that is correct. However, the reverse is also true. If there is no covenant of works with Adam, whereby he could have earned the righteousness that he supposedly needed to obtain eternal life, <coughs> then there is no act of obedience in the sense that covenant theology teaches it. I have to immediately add here that covenant theology's view of active obedience does not mean that the concept is not biblical. It just means they are in the wrong pew in the right church. 
There is no doctrine of, ab of active obedience. I didn't say that. I said there is no active obedience in the sense that the Reformed people hold that view. Second, despite what some New Covenant theologians say, we can believe that the necessary righteousness that enables us to stand in perfection before God was indeed secured by Christ keeping the law for us. However, this can be true only if we're talking about the Mosaic Law Covenant. We must see that covenant as the biblical covenant of works. Third, I know of no proponent of New Covenant theology who in any way questions or denies that a believer inherits the righteousness of Christ by faith alone any more than the Plymouth Brethren questioned this fact. Fourth, the question under discussion is not, must a sinner have an alien righteousness secured by Christ alone in order to be justified before God? All believers would say yes. That's the gospel. I cannot emphasize enough that to deny that is to deny the gospel. The question is not, do we need righteousness imputed to us in order to be saved? The answer is absolutely. The question is not, did Christ alone in his atoning work provide the salvation and righteousness that sinners need in order to be justified? And again, the answer is absolutely he did. There's basic agreement among all parties in this debate so far. The point of disagreement arises when we ask, did Christ secure the righteousness that he imputed to us by one, obeying a covenant of works first made with Adam, two, by obeying the law covenant made with Israel at Sinai, three, or by his atoning work on the cross alone? The question we must address is, where did Christ get the righteousness that he imputes to us? Dabney explains it well. There is no question, this is Dabney talking, there is no question that the law contains a twofold sanction. If its terms be perfectly kept, the reward will be eternal life. If they be broken in any sense, the punishment will be death. Pardon alone would release from the punishments of its breach, but would not entitle the reward of its performance. In other words, he who broke it and has suffered the penalty does not stand on the same platform with him who has kept it. We would agree. We would agree that the law contains a twofold sanction. If Dabney were talking about the law covenant given to Israel at Sinai, that law indeed promised life and righteousness for perfect obedience, and it promised death and damnation for disobedience. The problem is that Dabney is not talking about the law covenant at Sinai. He believes that the Mosaic covenant was not a legal covenant but it was an administration of the covenant of grace. He is talking about a theological devised covenant of works with Adam. Dabney believes that Adam could have earned a righteousness that he did not have at his creation, but that he needed in order to be justified, righteous in God's sight. That was not a legal covenant, but, uh, pardon me, could have earned righteousness that he did not have at his creation, by obeying a covenant made with him before he fell. Now here's where we balk. Adam, by obeying that covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, could have earned life and a standing with God 
that he did not have from creation. And there we balk. In the following quotation, Dabney discusses Adam's relationship with God. But last, the scriptures imply that man would neither have suffered nor died if he had not sinned by appointing death as the threat against transgression. And this, while it meant more than bodily death, certainly included this, as is evident from Genesis 3, 17 through 19. These last verses, he has about six verses then. These last, evidently, these last verses evidently have reference to the covenant of works made with Adam. And they explicitly say that if a perfect obedience were possible, as it was with Adam before he fell, it would secure life. Not only not, it doesn't say that explicitly, it doesn't even hint at that. That is pure presupposition. These last evidently, no, not evidently. And they explicitly say, no, they don't. No, they don't. Dabney's dogmatic. He claims that all of the text in the above quotation evidently have reference to the covenant of works made with Adam. He further claims that these proof texts explicitly say that if a perfect obedience were possible, as it was with Adam before he fell, it would secure eternal life. They say nothing of the kind. Dabney's blowing smoke. Dabney's stating exactly what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. The problem is that none of the texts that he mentions refer to a covenant of works whereby Adam could have earned life and righteousness. There's no textual evidence that God gave Adam an opportunity to earn righteousness and eternal life. No text or context speaks of Adam failing to keep a covenant of works and consciously or consequently failing to earn a promised eternal life. I view the Garden of Eden as follows. Suppose I put you on a farm and I tell you that I will pay all the bills, fertilizer, electricity, maintenance, every single bill I will pay. It won't cost you a penny. All of the livestock, all of the grain from the fields, you can keep or sell whatever you want to. And this whole farm is yours, no expense to you, Everything in it is yours. There's only one condition. There's a little house out back of the barn. That's mine. Don't ever go in it. The day you go in that house, I'm going to throw you off of the farm. That's the exact deal that God made with Adam. He put him in the garden, gave him every tree, everything in the garden. One condition. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, when I tell you all the animals are yours, all the produce is yours, all of this is yours, and I tell you that there's this one condition, don't go in that house. Have I in any way, I mean any way, intimated, suggested, implied that if you don't go in that little house for X number of years, I'm going to move you to a bigger farm? <laughs> but that's exactly what you have to believe if you believe with the covenant that works with Adam. That in the phrase, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That implies that if you don't eat, you won't die. You can't get that out of that text. This is the exact deal that God made with Adam. Genesis 2.17 
trying to get a reward for life and righteousness out of that text would be like this. A man hires an employee and says, now, you have a one-year probation. If you're late one time, you're fired. One time, you're fired. And the guy goes to work. He works for one year without being late one time. He goes to the boss and says, where's my reward for being on time? <laughs> where's my reward for being on time? That's nonsense. In covenant theology's view, the great tragedy of the fall is not what Adam lost, but what he failed to gain by obeying a covenant of works. And if you want to see this, compare the Heidelberg Confession, the Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism, and how it defines the fall as compared to the Westminster's definition of, of the fall. And one emphasizes what Adam failed to gain, and the other one emphasizes what Adam lost. In Covenant Theology's view, the great tragedy of the fall is not what Adam lost, but what he failed to gain by obeying a covenant of works. Our Lord is said to have earned the very life and righteousness that Adam failed to earn, and that in that life and righteousness that's imputed to the believer. I can find neither Dabney's nor the Westminster Confessions of Faith any place in Genesis 2 or 3 or any place else in Scripture. Let me explicitly restate a key point. One may reject covenant theology's explanation of the active obedience of Christ, which I rejected, without rejecting the truth that Christ lived under the law covenant of Sinai and earned the perfect righteousness that the law covenant, law covenant promised, which I believe. We must view Christ's law keeping in terms of the covenant under which his terms he lived and died. In other words, the question is not, did Christ's obedience learn did Christ's obedient life earn righteousness? It did indeed, but that misses the point. The question is, under what law was Christ born that enabled him to earn the righteousness that the law promised? The answer is the law covenant at Sinai and not a covenant of works of Eden. Notice how explicit the Westminster Confession of Faith is in its statements. Notice also that the proof texts do not teach what the confession states. And here's its Westminster's Confession's definition of the first covenant. The first covenant made with Adam was a covenant of works, Galatians 3.12. That says nothing about Adam. That refers to Mount Sinai. Wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, Romans 10.5, Romans 5.12-20, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience, Genesis 2.17, Galatians 3.10. When you examine the proof text that Dabney and the Westminster Confession of Uses, you will see that not a single text directly refers to Eden except for Genesis 2.17. This verse records the curse that God pronounced for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but says nothing about earning life and righteousness. The Westminster Confession of Faith links this verse to Galatians 3.10, a text that refers to a curse but not this curse. Paul in Galatians 3.10 is specifically quoting Deuteronomy 27.26, the concluding words of a series of curses pronounced by Moses with reference to the commandments and statutes that he had just explained. 
No text in all of Scripture ever connects any kind of a promise of justification or eternal life to an obedience of a covenant made in Adam or made in Eden with Adam. The confession's use or misuse of Galatians 3.12 is consistent with its treatment of other texts. Galatians 3.12, which says, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does, that, does them shall live by them. That cannot be pushed back into Eden. It can only refer to Mount Sinai. Paul is not quoting from Genesis. He's quoting from Leviticus 18.5. This is the same text he quotes in Romans 10.5, another of the proof texts. Paul is not referring to a covenant of Eden. He is specifically referring to the covenant of works at Sinai. Romans 5, 12 through 21 indeed teaches that all people were represented by Adam in his fall. And guilt was imputed to all people because of Adam's one act of transgression. But that passage nowhere suggests that we could have in some way earned righteousness by some act of obedience of Adam. Nowhere in all of Scripture are we told that Adam could have earned a righteousness that would be imputed to us by obeying a covenant of works. Dabney's adamant that the Mosaic covenant is not a legal covenant, but is rather an administration of the theological-derived covenant of grace. In this section, on, on his section on the covenant of grace, Dabney argues at length that the covenant made at Sinai is not a covenant of works. See pages 452 and 456 for the full treatment. This is what he says in conclusion. The followers of Cocius and his school have texts which we admit bear plausibly against our identification of the Mosaic and Abrahamic dispensations. They point us not only to the numerous places in the Pentateuch which seem to say, like Leviticus 18.5, do and live, doesn't seem to say that. It says that. Period. Which seem to say that the covenant of grace is, quote, not according to the covenant made with the fathers in the days God took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It doesn't seem to say that. That's what it says. So they urge John 1.17, Galatians 3.12, Romans 10.5, Galatians 4.25, Hebrews 8. The new covenant began to be spoken by the Lord and so must antedate the Christian era and so on and sets like passages. But notwithstanding this array, there are irresistible arguments for the other side. It is all these texts that clearly teach that Mount Sinai is a legal covenant and says we admit there's a lot of stuff here, <laughs> but there's more on the other side. After admitting that there are plausible passages that refer to sign as a legal covenant, and then declaring that they are irresistible arguments to counter those texts, one would expect a clear exegesis of those quoted texts showing how they are misunderstood. Dabney never exegetes a single one of the plausible passages. He just lets them stand. And then he gives some irresistible arguments and their theological arguments, and they're not at all convincing. When one, what one finds is classical covenant theology's arguments. We believe the only covenant of works that promised life for obedience was the law covenant at Sinai. Dabney goes on to illustrate the twofold nature of the law's covenant demands. Suppose, for instance, that I promised to my servants a reward for keeping my commands and threatened punishment for breaking them. At the end of the appointed time, one of them has kept them 
and receives the reward. A second one has broken them and is chastised. Suppose the second should then arise and claim his reward also on the ground that suffering the full penalty of the preach of the breach was an entire equivalent for perfect obedience. We would agree with that and think it's a good illustration. Again, we agree with Dabney that we need both forgiveness and a positive righteousness. The question that we must settle is the source of that righteousness. Does that righteousness flow from the cross work of Christ alone, or did Christ earn it in his perfect obedience, his life and death to the law that was given at Sinai? Let me continue with Dabney's quotation. Remember that Dabney is not talking about the biblical covenant of works at Sinai. He's talking about a theological covenant of works supposedly made with Adam. Quote, since Christ steps into the sinner's stead to fulfill in his place the whole covenant of works, he must, in order to procure for us a full salvation, both purchase pardon for guilt and a, part, a positive title for life and favor. The sinner needs both. Let me digress a minute. I agree. The sinner needs both. But Adam isn't a sinner. Adam doesn't need either forgiveness of sins or righteousness. Adam, before his fall, did not need pardon for guilt. He wasn't a guilty sinner. Adam, the moment he entered into the covenant of works, was guiltless and in one sense righteousness. I'd like to know what that sense is. God could not justly have visited him with infliction nor taken away from him his natural happiness. But did Adam therefore have a title to that assured eternal life, including all the blessings of perseverance, infallible rectitude, and sustaining grace, which was held out in the covenant? Where? As the reward by his earned obedience. Now this is what the sinner needs to a complete justification. What Christ gives us therein. I agree. This is what the sinner needs to a complete justification. But Adam isn't a sinner. Guilty sinners need justification. Adam isn't a sinner. I wish Dabney had elaborated on exactly what sense Adam was righteous before he fell. I also would have liked him to show from Scripture that Adam was assured eternal life, including all the blessings of perseverance, infallible rectitude, and sustaining grace, which was held out in the covenant as the reward to be earned by obedience. You get that out of Genesis 2.17? I do not find any of the promises in Genesis 2.17. None of these things that are promised. If grace means anything close to favor showed to hell-deserving sinners, then Adam certainly did not need grace before he fell. The question is not, do we need righteousness imputed to us in order to be saved? The, question, the answer to that is absolutely. The question is not, did Christ alone in his atoning work provide the righteousness that sinners need in order to be justified? And again, the answer is absolutely yes. But again, Adam was no sinner. Adam did not need righteousness imputed to him to be saved because he wasn't lost. Adam, prior to his fall, did not need the atoning work of Christ to be justified simply because he wasn't a sinner. 
talking about a righteousness that covers the guilt of a sinner who broke God's holy law and provides them with a righteousness that enables them to stand in the presence of a holy God is not the same as a righteousness given to an already righteous person who had no sin to cover. If we move the covenant of works from Eden to Sinai and from Adam to Moses, then we will agree that the sinner needs an intern, he needs an earned righteousness as well as the full pardon for sins. Further, we will also agree that in his redemptive work, our Lord provides both of these by obeying the law and dying on the cross as our surety. If this is active obedience, then I have no trouble at all with the concept. I find no problem with believing that Christ earned every blessing, including righteousness that the law promised, and two, endured every curse the law threatened for what has, but again I say, what has that to do with the covenant of works with Adam? Nothing. The cross cannot be separated in any way from either Christ's perfect law-keeping life or from his resurrection from the dead. It's true beyond question that if Christ had not perfectly obeyed the law, he could not have offered himself as a sacrifice. Likewise, it's true that if Christ had not risen from the dead, all his sufferings would have been in vain. We do not question these things in the least. However, we do insist that Scripture does not distinguish Christ's law-keeping life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead as three essential self-contained entities that meet these three specific separate requirements for our full salvation. The cross work of Christ needs nothing added to it in order to provide full redemption. Having said that, we also insist that the biblical twofold requirements of the law, obey and live, disobey and die, imply two distinct aspects of atonement. Let me try to lay out exactly what I believe. First, the law covenant at Sinai certainly demanded certain things as well as prohibited certain other things. The law contains lists of both do and do nots. There are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Does the scripture teach that Christ vicariously paid for, one, all my sins of commission against the do not parts of the law? Yes. Did he also pay for my sins of omission in my failure to perform all the law, all the do parts of the law? Put another way, does the blood atonement pay for my failure to love God with all my heart or did the law-keeping of Christ fulfill that requirement for me? This is kind of similar to John Owen's famous dilemma on the atonements. You remember that? If Christ died for all of our sins, or else he paid for some of our sins, and so on. Well, what about unbelief? Well, if that's one of the sins, then he paid for that sins also. This is the same argument that you could argue here. It's necessary that my duty to love God with all my heart be actually fulfilled by me, or by a substitute, or is my failure to obey that commandment to love God merely a sin that needs atonement? Someone asked Jesus what the greatest law was, and he quoted Deuteronomy 6.5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind. Must I, as a sinner, have that kind of life credit to my account, or does the bloodshedding of Christ pay for my failure to provide such a life? Valid question. Second, the law covenant at Sinai included the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. It took two goats to display the work of atonement. The Lord's goat 
the one that died, clearly pictured propitiation. The other goat, the one taken out into the wilderness, pictured expiation. If it took two goats to display two aspects of the atonement, why would it be strange to have our full salvation, full justification, which includes imputation of righteousness, involve more than one aspect? Just because we reject the idea of building an active and passive obedience on a covenant in Genesis that we don't believe exists, that does not mean the concept itself is not biblical. Likewise, just because we do not have a text that speaks directly to the phrase active and passive obedience does not mean that scripture does not allow and even promote such an idea. As I mentioned earlier, J.N. Dabry and William Kelly, among others, rejected covenant theology's view of active passive obedience of Christ. Some theologians make the same objection today, so we'll discuss their concerns. First, Dabney and Kelly's view in no sense whatever denies the true and real righteousness of Christ imputed to believers. The Plymouth Brethren clearly and consistently preach imputed righteousness. I keep saying that because I want to emphasize it because it's being denied today. It would be both simplistic and contrary to historical facts to, success that, to suggest that Darby and Kelly were taking the first steps towards the new view on justification. The history of the Plymouth Brethren proves beyond question that the two views are not essentially related. As I've stated earlier, denying that Christ's righteousness is imputed to sinners as a basis of their justification before a holy God is a denial of the gospel. Denying that God made a covenant works with Adam, whereby Adam could have earned by his obedience to that covenant a righteousness that he needed to inherit eternal life, that's another matter altogether. Second, the brethren view does not in any sense deny that the righteousness that's imputed to sinners is the sole and all-sufficient ground for their full and eternal justification before God. Again, no one's more faithfully and forcefully preached the gospel of total imputation of righteousness by grace than faith and have the Plymouth Brethren. And there are men today who are faithfully, fervently preaching imputed righteousness who are accused of denying it because they don't believe in a covenant of works with Adam. I will probably be one of them after this sermon. Third, the brethren view insists only that scripture never viewed Christ's perfect law-keeping life as a separate part of his redemptive work, vicariously imputed in the same sense as his death on the cross. They maintain that every single blessing enjoyed by the redeemed sinner grows out of the cross and the sinner's union with Christ. Fourth, the brethren view argues without reservation that it was essential for Christ to be born under the law, keep it perfectly in order for his bloodshedding to be acceptable to God. What is the sound of grace view? I've been asked that question. What is this position of sound of grace on the divergent views on active obedience and justification? First, we totally reject the new view on justification. We have four articles that you can read on the web that we deal with that. It is outside the pale of orthodoxy. We believe the new view, whether intentionally or not, undermines the gospel of free and sovereign grace. It turns the perseverance of the saints into a work to be rewarded. It also merges and confuses justification and sanctification. Second, we reject basing the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ on a covenant of works with Adam in the garden. However, we do not believe that someone who holds such a view has fallen into heresy in any sense whatever. 
We do not place this doctrine in the same category as the new perspective on justification. The controversy over active obedience has been and should remain an in-house debate. The new view on justification is different because it denies the gospel of sovereign grace. The new view is more than bad theology. It ventures outside the realm of biblical orthodoxy. Third, we agree with Dabney and those who share his position that everything that Christ did in his humanity was vicarious. Our Lord did not become our substitute and surety when he went to the cross. He was our substitute the moment that he stepped out of heaven. Log this into your computer and then push the save button. And then push that button that says read only where you can't ever delete it. Everything that Christ did in his humanity is vicarious for me. He was born for me. He lived for me. He died for me. He was buried for me. He was raised from the dead for me. He lives for me at the Father's right hand. And glory to his name, he's coming again for me one day. He was as much my substitute in the womb of the virgin as he was on the cross. <coughs> this concept of substitution easily allows me to apply the idea of an act of obedience to the law in the following situations. When I hear our Lord say, I do always those things that please my father, John 8, 29. I have no trouble saying the Lord Jesus was obeying the father in my place. He was obeying the law for me. That was me talking to my representative. I was pleasing the father. When the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, <clears throat> Matthew 3, 3, 17, I have no trouble believing that the father was including me in his statement because I was in Christ at that moment and Christ was fulfilling as my various vicarious substitute my obligation to love God with all my heart. You may call that Christ's act of obedience under the law for his people or you may call it whatever you choose. I will preach it as Christ living for me vicariously under the law, just as he died for me vicariously on the cross. I can stand in the presence of God without fear because of the truth that Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. It makes little, if any, difference if one, Christ's righteousness imputed to me as part of his law-keeping life, or if that righteousness is imputed to me as part of his cross work alone, as long as it's the same righteousness. The reality that the righteousness imputed to me has nothing to do with the covenant works with Adam does not change the fact that Christ has provided me with the very righteousness the law covenant at Sinai demanded and that he has delivered me from the very curse the same law covenant threatened. Several years ago, I sat in a meeting called to discuss the subject of active obedience to Christ. After listening for two hours to one group defend the concept and another group deny the concept, I remain unchanged in what I have believed and have preached for years. I still believe that the heart of justification is the doctrine of imputation. I find the following three imputations in scripture. Number one, the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to all of his posterity without exception. Adam represented me and when he sinned, I sinned. Adam's sin is imputed to me, not because Adam is in me, but because I was in Adam. 
It was my legal union with Adam as my representative that constitutes me to be guilty in God's sight. I was made to be guilty in Adam. Second, imputation. My sins were imputed to Christ and he paid on the cross the just penalty for all of my sins. The third imputation. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to me. Christ's righteousness is imputed to me not because Christ is in me, but because I am in Christ. I was made to be righteous in Christ just as I was made to be guilty in Adam. I am not overly concerned with whether we call number two the passive obedience of Christ and number three the active obedience of Christ or give them some other name. I just want that righteousness. <clears throat> in both cases, <coughs> it is the same righteousness. It comes to us only because of the merits of Christ and it's imputed to us only because of our union with Christ. I think it is wrong to emphasize the particulars and miss the central idea. We are united to a person and in that union we receive everything that he is and everything that he's done. In him we receive forgiveness, justification, righteousness, adoption and the like. <coughs> it's one ball of wax. Where did I end? It's one ball of wax. It is vital to understand that both the imputation of our sin to Christ and his righteousness to us cannot occur in a sinner's experience unless accompanied by regeneration. The giving of the Holy Spirit which begins the work of sanctification, actually making the justified sinner holy in life. Justification would indeed be legal fiction if it were not accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit producing real and vital union with the living Christ. We agree with Jan Jonathan Edwards. The justification, by the, the justification of the believer is no other than his being admitted to communion in or participation of this head and surety of all believers, Christ himself. Likewise, Luther said, we in Christ equals justification. Christ in us equals sanctification. A.A. <coughs> Strong said it well. The relation of justification to regeneration and sanctification, moreover, delivers it from the charges of externality and immorality. God does not justify men in their ungodliness, even though they are justified while still ungodly in themselves. He pronounces them just only because they are united to Christ, who is absolutely pure and who by his spirit can make them just, not only legally in the eyes of the law, but also in moral character. The very faith by which the sinner receives Christ is an act in which he ratifies all that Christ has done and accepts God's judgment against sin as his own. Recently, I received a paper dealing with the subject discussed in this article. I emphasize, it, this, this article emphasized that there were only two views, the covenant view and the view espoused by the writers of the paper. <coughs> Basically, the view of Darby and Kelly. As is often the case, there's a third view not mentioned. The authors of the paper call their views the consistent New Covenant theology view. <coughs> I have a pair of antennas that go up. Every time somebody says, this is the consistent view. 
You may, I guess, advertise that John Riesinger is an inconsistent New Covenant theologian. <laughs> I guess I'll just have to bear that name because I think they're crazy. I am unsure, however, why my view is inconsistent with New Covenant theology. I believe I have a righteousness imputed to me, earned by Christ keeping the law in my place. If I believed that the identification of the law that Christ obeyed in order to earn that righteousness <clears throat> had anything at all to do with the supposed covenant with Adam, then I could understand why some people may call me inconsistent with what their view of New Covenant theology teaches. As you can see by what I have said, I fall into neither the standard two views, and that's a fairly consistent position for most things for covenant, New Covenant theologians. I have some questions for the consistent view. Here they are. Did the law covenant made at Sinai promise life and righteousness to all who obeyed it? Yes. Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, Galatians 3.12, Mark 10.17-19. Was Jesus born under that law? Yes. Did he perfectly obey that law and then die under the curse of that law? Yes. Did his law-keeping life earn life and righteousness? Yes, I don't care what you believe. The answer has to be yes. Do I need a specific text to say Jesus lived a life that earned the life and righteousness promised in the law? No, I don't need a text for that. If the law promised life and righteousness, and I have a text for that, to anyone who kept it, and if, I, and if Jesus kept it and have a law saying that he did, would it not be legitimate to say Jesus earned life and righteousness by his sinless life and obedience to the law? No problem. The scripture teaches it. Because covenant has no textual proof of a covenant of works with Adam, whereby he could have obeyed and earned life and righteousness, does not mean that there is no such covenant anyplace else in scripture. When I read Exodus 19, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, then I'll make you a peculiar holy people. Israel never became any of those things because they never kept the covenant. We're told in 1 Peter that we are those things. We are that holy nation. Why? Because a surety has kept the covenant in our place and earned those blessings for us. And we can say, hallelujah. Is that right? Hallelujah. I'm done. Uh, I guess I'll be first since no one else was standing up. <laughs> hey, my name is Berkeley. Nice to meet you, John. Um, you thank have you. To talk good and loud so I can hear. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> nice to meet you, John, and it's been uh, a pleasure to be here. And it's, thank you very much for your devotion to the Word of God. Um, you said that there were three main, what you would consider orthodox views of the imputation. And of course, the question is not that we need Christ's righteousness. That's totally clear, and thank you for that. Um, I have a statement that I wrote down, and I was wondering if you would consider it another alternative yet orthodox view that you could enter, enter, entertain. 
and let me know how wrong I am in a second. I, I, I forgot my hearing aids. You're going to have to talk a little bit louder. Yes, sir. Okay, so here's the statement, and you tell me uh, why it's wrong. Okay? Okay. Is it impossible to say that the righteousness Christ had was not earned but inherent, and therefore the righteousness imputed to us is from the very core of his eternal character? He was inherently righteous, but that would not be a righteousness that he could give to somebody else. John Bunyan said that he lived under the law and earned righteousness, but he had an inherent righteousness. So he had two righteousness, Bunyan said, and being a believer in the Sermon on the Mount, which he wrote, where he says a beggar has no coats and you have two, give him one of yours. So he gave him one of his coats of righteousness. So I would say that the inherent righteousness is not something that can be communicated to someone else. But the righteousness of the law, where one earns the righteousness of that law, that's a different matter altogether. Does that help? Um, a couple of scripture passages come to mind that I'm going to have to look up and I'll come back if there's no wine. Okay. Okay. Have to speak up. Yes, sir. Don Theobald. Um, in the light of Adam, in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3, uh, there is the tree of life. Um, what is the significance of that? Why does God expel Adam from the garden before he eats from the tree of life that he might live forever? I guess what I'm getting at was there still an eternal kind of life to obtain by being faithful? Uh, the last part again. Was what happened to Adam just what he lost, or was there an eternal life to be gained by being faithful in the light of the tree of life? It seems to me that the only way that Adam could have earned an eternal life was from eating the tree of life. I don't find any place where he could have earned life by keeping a covenant. I don't know if that answers your question or not. But being kicked out of the garden, if he would have eaten the life, apparently, and I say this apparently, if he would have eaten the tree of life while in a state of sin, he would have lived forever in sin and would not have been able to redeem. So it was an act of grace that ran him out of the garden. That's my understanding of it, but I've never been asked that question before. I'm beast number three, <clears throat> Steve Cowden. Um, you made one statement uh, about uh, Exodus 19 that uh, I think you said that Israel did not attain <clears throat> Israel did not attain to uh, being uh, that covenant nation. Mm -hmm. um, so are you saying that at no time did they ever fulfill Exodus 19? 
Uh, the text is Exodus 19. That they weren't a holy race, a royal priesthood? Pardon? They weren't a royal priesthood, a holy nation? They, they, they were a holy nation in the sense that holy means separate from all other nations, but they were not holy in the sense of being justified. In other words, most of the generation that was alive over 21 who left Egypt, only a handful of those were saved and the rest of them died and went to go to hell. And one of the mistakes of both dispensationalism and covenant theology is they will take the words loved, chosen, called, redeemed, and apply them to Israel in the same sense that they're applied in the New Testament. Israel was loved as no other nation, but they were not loved with the love of election. Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, but that's not the same as being redeemed by the blood of Christ. So you can't take any of those things that are said about Israel and apply them in the sense of redemption to the New Testament people of God. So Israel never became the true, holy, in the sense of redeemed by blood people. Okay, I was just... But we have, we have become those things. Right. I, we I are heard... living stones in the true temple of the living God. Right. I was just wondering the, the statement, the way it came across to me, was, seemed kind of odd. Um, well, the main question then is, <clears throat> in Romans 5, where the imputation is taught, most specifically, as I understand it, anyway, in the New Testament. Um, verse 18, so then as through one trespass, the judgment came unto all men to condemnation, even so through one act of righteousness, the free gift came unto all men to justification of life. The contrast there <clears throat> seems to be the one trespass and the one act of righteousness and that that what seems verse to, is that that's verse 18 13 18 18 Romans right 518 therefore by the offense of one judgment came upon all to condemnation even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life right the American Standard 1901 translates that through I, one act of righteousness I'm sorry, with my hearing aid, I can't hear. Let's see. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. Well, the, the point being that <clears throat> the one act of righteousness. Well, the Plymouth Brethren used that text. They used that to prove that that was referring to the cross, that the cross is the one act of obedience. And I don't know who it was that has answered that, and has, has demonstrated that the, the one act is not just a one-time thing, but is the whole of one's whole life, which is one act of dedication that leads to total obedience of everything. So I, I, I don't think that text would have a bearing on agreeing or disagreeing with what I said. Okay, well, so in the contrast then, if we say that that's the act of righteousness, do we then say the same thing the, the, about Adam's, that it was his whole act of life that brought sin? I think so. Okay. That, that when he offered himself up, 
as one act of offering, but he offered himself up his whole lifetime. Right, but the, the contrast is with, with Adam and his one act of sin. So to read the act of righteousness as being his whole life, we would by contrast say then the way we got to be sinners was through the whole life of Adam. But I think his comparison is that by, by one act, we are made unrighteous and we are forgiven of many sins, whereas there was only one sin in falling. And when he says, by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many, all that Adam represented, by this obedience or of some, of one, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law and <laughs> I'm really not sure what your problem is that I can help you with. Well, the, the contrast, I <clears throat> can't remember where it's seven, eight, or nine times. You had to talk it, a little bit louder. The contrast that Paul is making to me is that there's this event of Adam's one sin, the one sin of the one man Adam, um, versus the one act of righteousness of the one man Jesus Christ. I, I just, just want that to see how you all would address it. If there's a paper, I'll be glad to read it. Would anybody else like to take a shot at answering this? But get up to the thing. It's already been answered by Greg Van Cork. Uh, that's probably where I read that. Yeah, it's, it's in here. Like Volker and Lehrer already uh, have said that. Stand up, stand, stand up there and give it. That's where I read that. that he answers that very thing. In the Obedience of Christ by Gregory A. Van Cort, which if they still have copies available on page 9, that very same phraseology, that same issue was raised by Lehrer and Volker and uh, Greg Van Cort did attempt an answer in here. Okay, does that help? Do you... Do you <laughs> I think the thing the brother was trying to point out is that if you read some versions, it doesn't speak about one man doing one, uh, it speaks about one act. In most of our versions, it speaks about one man doing this and another man doing that. But in some versions, it reads one act and another act. Am I right in that or not? Okay. That's the, the problem that he was wrestling with. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, it helps if I can get that article. And I'm, I'm glad, Jack, that I gave you your final opportunity to get to the Looks like we're finished. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I thank you for your presentation. It's very clear, and uh, I'm in complete agreement. Um, the only thing is, in Christ's active obedience, would we not say that his obedience actually exceeded the righteousness of the law? Say that again. That, that Christ's active obedience not only fulfilled the law, but it exceeded the, the 
external commandments of the law. I, I think that's an unfortunate phraseology. Well, probably. His going to the cross was active. When, when, he, when, yes. he, when he put himself in the Father's hands, that was the most active thing in the world. I lay down my life. That's active. Oh, no, I'm not questioning that. I'm, I'm just saying that in his obedience, in his active obedience, in keeping the law, that he would have actually exceeded the requirements of the law. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not contending with what you said in any way. I'm just, just looking at be, in Christ. For example, a, his, command, his own commandments exceeded the righteousness of the Mosaic law. Yeah. So the, no problem. Yeah. Okay. No problem. Um, did you make the statement earlier that Jesus earned life by obedience to Sinai? I think that's what I heard you say. Say that again. Je did you say Jesus earned life by obedience to the law of Sinai? Life and righteousness are almost synonymous things in, in, in this sense. And yes, he earned eternal life. He earned righteousness by obedience to his law. Yes. So um, it seems to be a contrast to me that Jesus, at least in my reading of the text, didn't earn life but actually was life. That Jesus, for uh, John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Or as he says later, I am the, the, the way, the truth, and the life. Not I will obtain it later after I obey the law perfectly, but I already am life. Not that he ever earned it, but that he always had it. That, that seems to be the... He is the resurrection and the life. Yeah. yeah. No question, but I don't think there's a contradiction between that and his earning the life of the, the life the law promised. I don't think there's a contradiction in that, personally. Okay, that's fine. You didn't mention you have before... And I know most of us here probably have heard it, but you, you might want to mention from Machen his dying telegram to Murray and what he said in that telegram. Do you have, do you have that with you? Uh, no, but he, he, who did he write to? Machen wrote to Murray. Murray. He said how he thanked God for the act of obedience of Christ. Yeah. And he said, no hope without it. No hope without it, yes.